taste uh, at what Christ has done and how it is that even now he stands and intercedes for us that we may find this great place in your presence. And so I pray uh, that by your mercy and grace you would speak to us in a way that we can hear, in a way that captures, captivates not simply our minds but our very beings all the way deep to the deepest part of our soul that we might know you as we're meant to and that we might glorify you as you most certainly deserve. And please speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Please turn to Hebrews and chapter 2. Hebrews and chapter 2. I really want to read uh, beginning with verse 10 through verse 18. Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 10, please. <clears throat> Hear the word of God. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell you, tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I'll put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through, the, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Last week we dealt with essentially verses 9 really through 13 today. I'll pick up 14 through 18. And I hesitate to say what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyway, and then I'll tell you why I hesitated. But I simply want to say that this is an astounding passage. And the reason I hesitate to say that is that the whole Bible is actually astounding. And so it, it's a little presumptuous of me to say that this particular passage is more astounding than the rest. But when I think about the very fact that God has spoken to us by the scripture, which is astounding in its own right, to think that God has written to us in our own language that we might understand, but that God has written to us. But when he writes to us, about the incarnation, about God becoming flesh and dwelling among us, where the very Son of God, the eternal Son of God took on humanity, where the very Son of God speaks to us and calls us his brothers, that he's become like us in every respect. We realize that it is through this very one, this Son, whom God speaks his most distinctive and final word to us. And thus we realize, <clears throat> excuse me, please, that the whole of the scripture is about him. And thus when we find these particular passages, 
were astounded. I mean, the whole idea of God is pretty amazing. Anyway, I mean, if you think about one who is all-powerful, and, and, and you begin to imagine all the great shows of power that you've ever seen and realize that none of those are a match for God. And, and to think that he is all-knowing, and to realize that there isn't a thought, there isn't something that's happened, there isn't a word that's been spoken, that he doesn't know and can't recall. In fact, God only, not only knows all that is, but he knows all that isn't, but could have been. See, we know trees, but God knows all the alternatives for trees. He picked trees. But he knows all that could have been, but weren't as good as trees. And everything else. And to imagine someone like him. And we think of the most brilliant mind that we might know or have read or have read about and realize that that one is no match at all for God. And then we think of one who is everywhere present and we think that it doesn't take God at all any time to get there because he already is. All at the same time. For all time. And we consider the very fact that his name describes him best when he simply says, I am, that is, that he is eternal that he is self-existent, that he is self-sustaining, that he's independent, simply meaning that he's always been here, always will be, has no beginning, no end, and he needs absolutely nothing, no one else other than himself in order to maintain, in order to continue. He simply is. And we realize that he's not been created and we realize that he isn't dependent upon anyone. And so we realize that there are really two categories. There's God on the one hand and everything else on the other. And they're that different. Because everything, therefore, is dependent upon him and he's depending upon nothing. And have you ever thought about the fact of meeting God? That very being like that. Karen and I, uh, when we have folks over for dinner that we don't know, often play a little game, and we play a little game that simply is to give your name and then to share who it is throughout all of history you would have liked to have lunch with. Not that we're not pretty cool to have lunch with, but, but if there was anybody else throughout all of history, you could name it. And we have to tell them, don't use biblical characters because people get really spiritual, you know, around the, around the pastor's table. And I always share that my would be Roberto Clemente, who used to play right field for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and that sort of eases the group a bit. Um, Moses then gives, oh, I guess Moses won't work there. But have you ever thought about the fact that we've been made to know God and that he's present with us? Jeremiah says, don't boast in your wisdom, don't boast in your strength, don't boast in your riches, boast that you know me, that is, that should be your confidence. That should be your pride. And since we were meant to know him, he sent one, the eternal son of God, like us, to be this final word for us. You know, Hebrews opens up and says that in days gone past, God has spoken, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And so you see, when we begin to contemplate the incarnation, contemplate the very Son of God becoming man and being with us, we're contemplating things that 
profound, but, but just think of those who saw Jesus, who walked with him. And then to hear him say, if you've seen me, if you've seen God, if you honor me, you honor God. If you believe in me, then you believe in God. For I and the Father are one. To imagine that very setting and to know that by his spirit he's with us and to know a day will come when he will bring us, those who believe in him, the many sons of glory, right into his, his presence. And you see, that's what this passage is all about. It's about the incarnation. It's about the eternal son of God. It's about this all-knowing one. It's about this eternal one. It's about this everywhere present one. It's about this all-powerful one. This very Son of God coming and living among us. And amazingly so, taking upon human nature. And so the question that we asked last Sunday as we introduced all of this, the question we asked last Sunday was simply this. Why was the incarnation necessary? Why did it really happen? Why did the Son of God take on flesh, human nature, and be like us? Why was that? And we gave the answer last week in essence from God's perspective and that is from verse 10 just simply saying that it was fitting for God. That it fit him. It was right for him. And it was right for him because verse 10 says for whom, uh, concerning God, for whom and by whom all things exist. You see, everything exists for God and by him. And so when human beings fell away, when human beings sinned, there was a sense in which they existed for themselves they existed even for Satan and God since everything is for him and by him and God couldn't simply let that happen because we're for him and thus he came sovereignly in control to save and thus it was fitting for God that he would be glorified that he'd be reflected that he'd be shown to be the great one in all the universe by the incarnation and certainly he was because as Christ has come we most certainly see the very wisdom of God for who else could save us we certainly see the power of God for who else could save us and we see the very justice of God because it was poured out upon Christ and we see the very love of God because it wasn't poured out upon us and so you see it was fitting for God that the very son of God would come it was fitting because his son would reveal him in all his glory I want today to take up uh, these verses beginning with verse 14 because they answer the question why the incarnation in one sense, this other sense from our perspective and the, and the simple answer why the incarnation is, is simply this because it's of great help to us. In fact, it's of necessary help to us. And, and, and we could say it helps us in a couple of different ways from this passage. One is that because of the incarnation, it means we're delivered from this slavery, this lifelong slavery that's due to our fear of death. So we're delivered from this slavery, really, to and through the fear of death. And then also this, because the Son of God became man, dwelt among us, died for us, because of that, he, in an amazing way, is able to help us when we're tempted. Keep those two in your minds. Let's take the first one first. That is, that Christ came to deliver us from this slavery uh, that's because of this fear of, fear of death. 
Uh, notice what it says here, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. That is, he became man, took on our nature. Remember as we walked through all of this last week, he didn't give up his divinity, but he took on humanity. One person, two natures, amazing, unique, mysterious, all of that true. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death... He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, three questions. This is a really dense sermon, by the way. So hang with me. Just going to have to listen. There's no other way to do this other than like this. It won't help you otherwise. I could be, I could be um, uh, superficial, uh, and you'd leave here superficially. Uh, so I'm hoping that we can track. I know it's early and all that, but you chose to come to this one. Um, now, three questions arise from, from that bit that I just read there. First this, how is it that the fear of death enslaves us? All right. Secondly, how is it that the author of Hebrews can say that the devil has the power of death? Right? And thirdly this, then, the, the clincher, how is it that the incarnation of Jesus destroys this fear? All right? Those three things fall out, I think, at least from that particular passage. Let's take the first one first. And that is, how is it that we can say that we live in this fear of death? Well, death is the reality, isn't it? I mean, death is the reality. Some people have found a way to avoid taxes. No one has been able to find a way to avoid death. Now, there's many people breathing right now who anticipate doing that, but, but, but they're just in for an, a, an interesting shock. They're not going to be able to avoid death unless Christ returns, of course. Death is the one reality. And if you think about how much just the existence of death affects our lives. I mean, all of these health issues that we face and all that we spend on health and all that we produce in the area of health is to do what, ultimately? To keep us alive. All the medications, all the procedures, all the surgeries, all the diagnoses, all the da 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 all of that we participate in. Why? Because if we don't, we know something will catch us, perhaps as we think prematurely, and cause us to die. And so we, we take care of all of this because of the reality of death. And so it's there in our thinking, all the safety issues, all the way from, from, from locks to seatbelts, because of the reality, the potential that we could be harmed, that we could, that we could die, all the vitamins, all the exercise, all of that related to this very fact that we could die. We shelter ourselves from the elements, we clothe ourselves so we won't catch our death of cold, right? It's there, this reality, the very fact of death. But you see, there is a sense of, of fear as we consider death as well. There's this sense of fear that, that perhaps uh, it will catch me too soon and I won't be able to live life or it will catch those I love too soon and I won't be able to experience life with them. There's that fear that overrides and it certainly does. It's certainly there, that anxiety that exists in the context of us. But the, but the basic fear of death comes from this innate sense whether we admit it or not, that God exists. And a day will come 
when we'll meet him. Hebrews chapter 7, I'm sorry, chapter 9, verse 27, puts it like this. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. That's just a reality. That's just a fact. And whether we want to admit it or not, however much we want to suppress it, and the scripture says we do suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That is, we go the wrong way, not the right way, and therefore we suppress these truths because we don't want to face them, because there's this sense of this impending judgment. And so this fear of that causes human beings to do all kinds of things so that we don't need to face it. And some of that is, this, is an unhealthy pursuit of good health. Some of it is in the philosophies of life, the, the great philosophy of life that helps Americans deny death and the reality of death and what's really behind it, that is judgment, is the sense that everybody goes to a better place. I mean, that's just pervasive in our culture. When someone dies, I don't care who it is, there's a remark made that that person is now going to a better place. How do you know that? On what basis do we know that? And if judgment comes after death, if that's the reality, if that's true, if God really is holy and really is just and all of that, then, then, then what about this judgment? And you see, it's to a great detriment that we avoid thinking about death, though we do. You see, the basic plan for most human beings throughout most of their life is simply deny it, to deny its existence. And when it comes close, we may consider that we busy ourselves with other things so that we don't really have to. And then we make up things that everybody goes to a better place. And, and therefore, we don't have to deal with the reality of death. And then when it happens, we, we simply get around it as quickly as we can. That's very unhealthy. The author of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, put it like this in Ecclesiastes. In chapter 7, verse 2, he says, It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Did you hear that? It's better to go where there's mourning than where there's a party. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. He says, you really need to, to consider this, not in a morbid way, but in an understanding way. Sorrow, he says, is better than laughter. He said, come on, that can't be true. Well, his point isn't that laughter is bad, but his point is that if your life is filled with laughter and you don't come to grips with sorrow and you've never come to grips with the reality of pain and suffering and death and you haven't lived life and you're missing something very important, the very thing that will come to you. Verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, house of mourning, but the heart of fools in the, is in the house of mirth. That is, if you live a life filled with pleasure, and you're a fool. That's your only concentration in life. You really need to come to grips with this very thing that faces us. Faces of all, of us all. And I must say that as I put this together, as I began to think about this, I wasn't unaware that this is graduation season. And I was thinking, what a better commencement address this would make than the ones I've heard. You see, the ones I've heard are simply, oh, you've done so well, you've gotten so far. Now soar. Wouldn't it be better to hear, really, are you ready to die? 
It's one of the reasons I've never been asked to give a commencement <laughs> address, I suppose. See, even your laughter in my own relieves that tension, doesn't it? Ah, oh, yes, this isn't fun. This isn't easy. Because there's something still there. Because the big question about death is what will become of me? What will really happen? So the author of Hebrews says, here's what I want to tell you. That we do live in a lifelong slavery through this fear of death but there is deliverance from it. So the second question is, how is it that the author of Hebrews can say that the devil has the power of death? Because you see, we know that God is sovereign over everything. The, Satan has power, the devil has power, but it's only derived, it isn't ultimate. We know that God has power over life and death, therefore, how is it that the Bible writer can say that, that the devil has the power of death? We see the weapon of Satan, the way that he gets to us in the context of death, really is because of sin. You remember in the Garden of Eden when he tempted Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they did. There's a sense in which at that moment in time, they abandoned the life that they had in God and moved in, if you will, in the dark place where there's only death. And physical death entered into the race is a manifestation of the fact that now sin has entered and thus life as God would have had it isn't the guarantee. And spiritual death entered the race as well as we were separated from God. And you remember the reason that God banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. He said, we need to get them out of here lest they eat of the tree of life. Because you see, life is from God. And when we sin, we're banished from that very life. And there's a sense in which you see that Satan keeps us bound in this fear of death by way of guilt. For he continues to remind us that we've sinned against God. And he continues to remind us that there's judgment for sin. And he continues to say, now you're mine. He's rather like the elder brother who convinces his younger 11-year-old brother to drive the car around the block while his parents aren't looking. And then once he pulls it into the driveway, he then says to him, I've got you. For if you ever tell on me, I'm telling dad that you drove the car when you were 11. And that little kid will be in bondage to that guilt as long as he is little. A day will, he'll figure it out when he's about 30 going, that's not a big deal anymore. <laughs> but with Satan, it is a big deal. And thus you see in the midst of that, he keeps us in, the, in that guilt. And he continues to say, oh, you've driven the car around the block when you shouldn't have. And I know that. And I'm telling God every day. And so when you die, you'll have to face him for that. Whatever it happens to be. Whatever the sin may be. And you see, the, the, the instantaneous result of a person is to say, I've got to bury that. I've got to, I've got to avoid that. I've got, I've got to disregard that. I've got to get on with everything else in life. I can't face that very fact that a day is going to come when I'm really going to have to visit God and see him. And, 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 and that reality of that sin and all the others are going to come forward. And so, so there's this denial, you see. But it's all based on fear. We don't live in the conscious fear of death generally but it's there and we suppress that truth and we try to avoid God and we try to avoid the reality of sin and all of that 
for all we're worth. And so it's that sense in which you see that Satan has the power of death. And so now the question is, well, well, how is it the, the incarnation, how is it the coming of Jesus can free us from that, can deliver us from that? And I, I hope you know the answer to this. In fact, we sang it. I, I, I couldn't even sing it. But this song we say, sang before the throne of God above. But the way that the incarnation delivers us, of course, is that by becoming a man, just notice these verses. Verse 14 again. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that is, we're human, he himself that is Christ, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that is, he took on our human nature as well. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's what he's going to do through the incarnation. By way of his death, how does this death do that? Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You see, and I don't really know how to explain this. I can only declare it to you because it's, it's so far beyond what we could have invented, what we could have thought up to think about the very eternal Son of God taking on human nature. I mean, I, I don't know where to go with that other than it's true. And in so doing, you see, he became a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, a priest is one who represents people before God. See, there's a sense in which the prophets would represent God to the people. And there's a sense in which the priest would represent the people to God. And so at this point, we're emphasizing the priestliness of Jesus, that he represented us. But you see, in order to do that, there is a way in which he had to touch us and touch God. And his divinity was touching God, but his humanity was touching us. And so you see, he went to God on our behalf as us. And he says he became our merciful and faithful high priest. And when he says he's merciful... It means that he's moved with compassion because he knows us and because he understands us. And the amazing thing that I can only declare to you is that God, in his love for us, took upon humanity so that there was a sense in which, a way in which he could empathize with us and sympathize with us and feel with us so that his mercy would be poured out even greater. Because now this high priest, this Jesus to whom we go, understands everything about us. He understands human life as only a perfect human being could understand that life. Don't you, when you have problems, go to someone who's more mature, who's more wise than you and, you, and you go to them with your problems because you know in their wisdom they'll understand. Generally, they're older, more experienced, and all of that. It's getting harder and harder for me to find those people. Not who are wiser, but who are older. But don't you go to them? And, and why do you go to them? Because as far as you can tell, they understand life better than anyone else. 
But here is our high priest who understands, again, amazingly so, who understands human life as only a perfect and a perfectly mature human being would understand that there's nothing he doesn't understand. There's nothing he can't understand the feeling of. He's not, there's nothing he can't understand the idea of from the perspective of a human being. And thus he represents us perfectly, you see, before God. And when it says he's merciful, you see, there's, there's a twinge there of affection. Oh, more than a twinge. There's affection there for us. One who is merciful says, I, I see your misery. I see your pain. And, and I'll help you. Because I can't just see it. Because when I see it, I move to help. And that's this high priest, you see. And so he represents us perfectly. And he's faithful as well. Faithful to God and faithful to us in everything so we can trust him. And then it says he became all of that to represent us perfectly. He became like us in every respect so that he could make propitiation for our sins. I hope you understand that word propitiation. We talk about it every time it pops up in the scripture. If you have a New American Standard, it should be propitiation. If you have NIV, it's a little expression called sacrifice of atonement. Propitiation is better. That's really the word. And what it means is this, that he was able to satisfy and extinguish and exhaust the wrath of God against us. And he did that through death. Why through death? Because that's what we deserve. And so he took it. He took the wages of our sin, which is death, and paid it. So now you see when Satan goes to him and says he drove the car around the block when he was 11. The father says, I have no record of that. And he said when he lusted, the father says, I have no record of that. When he said he lied, the father says, I have no record of that. And he said he hated the father said, I have no record of that. And he said, there was an abortion for those for whom Christ has propitiated their sins. The father says, I have no record of that. And so you see, we don't need Paul, the apostle in 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verse 55, puts it like this. He says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the stinger and the bee of death is our sin that interacts with the law and brings us condemnation. But what I announced to you when you first arrived, if you arrived close to on time, was now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Patient for your sins, which means in heaven there's no longer a case against you. It's closed, you're pardoned. And that is that. And thus we needn't fear. And so you see, when the fear of death comes to us, the way that... Christ helps us 
is that he stands before us and he says, I've already paid that. How does it put, forgive me if I can't read this, but before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me this depart. You see, Satan can't accuse us there. Our own consciences can't accuse us there. Because when that occurs, that word is bid depart, not us, but the word. And the father says, I haven't got that here. There is no case. I've transferred that name into this other list, this list that includes only those who have life. And so when we fear death, we need to get at its roots and say, what I'm really worried about is facing God, but I needn't worry. But there's another thing that is just as astounding. Verse 18, please. Verse 18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now this is an amazing thing as well. Because you see, because of the, 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 the perfect humanity of Jesus, not only in his perfection of obedience, but in his perfect experience of human life, in his perfect experience of even the suffering that is a result of human life, and even the suffering that's a result of human sin, not his own, of course, but ours, in all of that suffering, he's able to be merciful towards us and to represent us perfectly in such a way as to help us when we're being tempted as well. And you get a sense that this means in every kind of temptation. Whatever temptation we're facing, whatever temptation you are facing or I'm facing, it's very clear that we can go to Jesus and we can say, help me. And we don't need to be ashamed of saying, help me, because he understands the temptations which human beings face. And not only can we say, help me, but we can be assured of his help, of his help for two reasons. One is because he's merciful, because he looks upon us in his humanity and he says, I understand. I know what that's like. I know the pain of that. I know the suffering of that. I know the trouble of that. I know the hardship of that. I know how difficult that temptation is. And you say, I, I don't understand how Jesus could know that because he didn't have a sinful nature like ours. And I understand that and I don't have an answer for you. So deal with that on your own. But the scripture says that he does. And by faith, we trust that he does. And that you don't have to have a sinful nature to be a human being. Adam didn't before he sinned and was. We won't after we receive our new bodies and yet we'll still be human. So a sin nature is not a necessity for a human being. And so he experienced temptation and he experienced it faithfully, meaning that even though he was tempted, quite frankly, beyond what you and I could ever imagine being tempted, because you see, he took every temptation to its final point and was victorious over it. Usually we go about 20% of the way and give in. We don't even know the hard stuff, but he knew it all. 
because he took that temptation from beginning to end. And he was always faithful to God. And that's such a relief to me to know on the one hand he's merciful, he feels for me, understands my situation, but it's so helpful for me to go to him because he knows how to overcome it. You see, I could go to you and there are times when I do and there are times when you come to me to be helped in overcoming sin and all that's good. But really, what we do for each other after we talk and after we share our own experiences is we pray. Why? Because we want to go to the one who knows how to get out of this. We want to go to the one who has victory over this. We want to go to the faithful one, the one who knows how and has the power to be victorious over this particular sin. So we go to him and he says, I'm there and I'm able to help you. And it appears again as if that's true for every sin, every temptation that we encounter. And even when we give in, we go to him. And we might be once again assured that he made propitiation. But I want to make this application because I think it's contextual in this passage. To be really honest with you, I don't think, at least at this moment in time, though I've not experienced it close enough to be able to say definitively, I don't think I fear being dead. That doesn't appear to be a great anxiety to me. In fact, some days it looks like a wonderful relief. And I don't want to make light. But I don't think I have fear of being dead. I, I think, God forgive me, I think that I trust enough in the blood of Christ, at least will when I get to that point of being dead, that when I face God, that I won't be afraid. But what gives me anxiety is dying. I don't necessarily look forward to that because you see, even though he's delivered us from the fear of death, it doesn't mean that, it, that we won't have a hard death necessarily. It doesn't mean that it won't be very difficult for us to die. And I wonder about that, frankly. I don't look forward to losing bodily functions and losing my mind and the humiliation and lack of dignity of that. I, I don't look forward to spending all my money, whatever that might be, on the end and running out and then who knows what. I don't look forward to the humiliation of being dependent upon everybody else. I'm not very good at that. And I wonder if that won't bring frustration, anger. I wonder how I'll be. I wonder if I'll as the old Wesleyans said of themselves, that they die well. I wonder if I will. And I, that's a fear. I think about that. And the question is, what do we do with that? Well, here I think we have the answer. Jesus says, I will help you. And certainly, isn't he most able, hasn't he even proven himself most able to help us through dying? For he not only took on death, he took on dying. He took on that whole experience of dying. And he died in such a way that he experienced everything even worse than the worst of whatever death we could possibly experience ourselves. He was vulnerable as his body was broken. He was humiliated in every single way, socially, physically. And even in the context of facing his father, he felt the forsakenness to the depth that perhaps no other human could ever experience. And so he knows not only death, but dying. And he says, trust me. And then I begin to think that, that if he can help me 
through death's darkest moments. If in fact, the psalmist was writing of him when he said, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. If that's about Christ, as it must be. And if he can take us through those darkest moments of death, can't he also take us through the most difficult trials of life? I mean, if he can do that hard thing, if he can do that thing that takes me through, through that, which, which has to be the most difficult time, can't he also hanger, handle the anger that I have, perhaps on a daily basis, the frustration I have on a daily basis, the temptation, the lust that comes, the temptation for greed, the temptation for materialism, the temptation to despise, the temptation to turn away from God. If he can handle me, if he can help me in those most difficult moments, can't I have confidence that he will help me at every single turn? And that's amazing. Because you see, it isn't that we just go to each other for help. It isn't that we just go to the best expert in the field for help. But we go to this one who's the eternal son of God who knows everything perfectly. And he's the one who says, I will help you. What's your temptation? Or, or perhaps more accurately, what are the temptations that plague your soul even now? now? The word of God to us is this, that we're to go to Jesus. And this isn't some superficial little ditty this is truth. We're to go to Jesus, the very eternal Son of God, because he's the one who has taken upon himself our own humanity and suffered every temptation, for he's been made in every respect like us, yet without sin. He says, go to Jesus, for he's the very one through his death has destroyed the power of the one who holds death in his hands, that is Satan himself. And he's delivered you from that fear. Why? Because he's made propitiation for your sins. Trust him. And since he's suffered, and through his suffering been tempted in every single way, even while dying, trust him. And he will help you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I, I think we are amazed at your great love for us. It's so much so, it's, it's even hard to, to get our feeble minds around it. And because the subject is so dark, it's even hard to want to get our hearts around it. But I pray you would capture us with this truth that we needn't fear. We needn't fear death. We needn't fear Satan. We needn't fear the temptations of life. For Christ as us, for us, our merciful and faithful high priest, has satisfied your judgment, the guilt, 
has been removed. Satan has no hold on us any longer, thus death neither. And Christ, our merciful and faithful high priest, is always ready to help us, I pray, for me and for us, that we, moment by moment, avail ourselves of him, that we might receive his help and live. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, <clears throat> I remind you that there are elders available to pray. Please take advantage of that situation. There are times in life when it is difficult because of whatever it is that we're facing to really know the forgiveness of God by way of the work of Christ so our elders can help you pray and seek him and receive that assurance. And when we're going through difficulties, that's, it is helpful at times to have others take us to Christ and therefore in that way to the throne of grace to receive this help in times of need. So avail yourself, please, of that moment if elders are too intimidating for you. <laughs> talk to me about them. <laughs> or at least go to a friend. The response to the benediction is, Christ is my Savior. And we must savor that word Savior because it's rich and deep. For he saves us in every respect, most especially to deliver us from fear. Christ is my Savior. If that's true, then your response must also be hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now to him, look to him, who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence, and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, whom be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Christ is my Savior. Hallelujah.